0: Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode, we are talking about a class of organisms that are older than humans, older than dinosaurs, and even older than trees. To be more specific, we are talking about sharks. Throughout the episode, my guest will be covering some of the highlights of shark biology and shark evolution. Then we plan to transition to talk about shark conservation and their current status in the developing sixth mass extinction. And finally, to end on a light note, we'll discuss my guest's track in marine biology as well as his experiences as a science communicator thus far. So speaking of my guest, let me introduce John Laven. John received his undergraduate degree in biology and is now pursuing a masters in marine biology at the University of Miami with hopes of transferring into a PhD track in the coming months. His lab conducts research on a suite of conservation ecology topics with a heavy emphasis on sharks. And something I find super fascinating is that John has been fortunate to have shadowed under Nat Geo scientist Dr. Katherine McDonald. And over the summer, John began sharing his passion for and knowledge of sharks on TikTok as Marine Bio John. So, now that you've been introduced to my guest star and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into the first segment where we're going to dive into the biology and evolution of our underwater friends. Cheers. John, welcome to Everything Steam. How you doing, man?
1: Good. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to be here.
0: Man. Yeah, this is a really fun topic. Uh, I I've loved sharks ever since I've, you know, been a little kid and uh, I'm so happy to talk about it today and address some really fun subtopics in the world of sharks. Especially in this segment, we're going to be talking about sharks for probably 20 minutes. So I'm I'm hoping that the people listening to this is, you know, just as excited as we are. So this is all about Biology and evolution. And I kind of figured we could structure this in terms of first addressing what sharks are and then getting into kind of like a timeline thing and then just addressing like the really cool adaptations that sharks have enveloped over the hundreds of millions of years that they have been around or been shark like. So before we get into that, let's start with what I said as the precursor. John. What are sharks? Give me the basics.
1: Yeah, Sam. So while well, sharks, you need to differentiate them from your standard fish, right? Your standard fish is going to be bony fish, what we call in science a teleost fish. Uh, and so those fish have, as their name implies, bony skeletons, but sharks are really unique in, the, in that regard because they have cartilaginous skeletons. So they don't actually have An ounce of bone in their body. uh, And that's what really sets them apart. So their their entire skeleton is made out of cartilage. um, And most of, actually, the rest of their body, too, not only their skeleton, but their appendages, their jaw, their skull. So they are cartilaginous fishes. uh, And that's what a group that we call elasmobranchs. And that will also include your rays. But the way that rays are separate from sharks is that they have pectoral fins that are fused to their head. So long story short, sharks are just kept cartilaginous fishes with pectoral fins that are not fused to their head.
0: That's a that's a pretty broad definition. And I think that's why, well, at least as of right now, we're at about 500 species.
1: Yeah, so there most people don't know this because, you know, there's only a few of those big headline species that will pop into your mind uh, when you think of sharks, right? Obviously, you're going to have your great white, your tiger shark hammerhead, which many people don't even know. There's multiple species of hammerheads. Mm -hmm. Um, You might have your bull shark, right? These ones that hit the news a lot, but there's actually 500 species. And what I think is fascinating about this, and honestly, a a super important thing to talk about with sharks is that not every shark is an apex predator. Many of those sharks that you will immediately think of, those will be your apex predators, those big, large bodied sharks. But the vast majority of those 500 species are are much smaller, much more cryptic. You're not going to see them. And they're what we're going to classify as mesopredators. And they feed mostly on your invertebrates, your crabs, your various smaller feeder fish. You're never going to have 500 species of marine animal eating sharks. Uh, So that's, that's kind of the big thing to keep in mind there is, though there are 500 species, as humans in society, we won't even ever necessarily cross paths with them or interact with them. But there are 500 plus and counting.
0: It's very extraordinary. Like we were just talking about, you know, the, you think about it. So like the trilobites were around for a couple hundred million years and they had like 23,000 species. But it's different whenever you're thinking of predatorial class of of organisms like sharks. So why is there only 500 rather than 23,000? Do you mind explaining?
1: Absolutely. So as you go up a food chain, you're going to have a a large percentage of that energy that's transferred between uh, levels. We call those trophic levels. As you go up in trophic level, you have a lot of energy that's lost between each level, which can in turn then only support a smaller population. So this forms what we would call the trophic pyramid, right? Mm. Because it's much larger on the bottom and much more uh scarce in number on the on the top so your primary producers right your plants your algaes your various phytoplankton and zooplankton those are going to be extremely numerous more species than we can even imagine most of the time we can't even classify many of those types of organisms to the species level right we group them by genus if we can if we're lucky and so those are going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of species but as we go up the trophic level into our primary and secondary consumers we're going to kind of narrow down the numbers and then finally with our top level apex predators or tertiary consumers we're going to have much fewer much much fewer oh that's so cool
0: so yeah like you alluded sharks have been around for a heck of a long time and the date obviously is you know plus or minus and it's not exact but How we know that at least a shark-like species has been around for about 450 million years. So that's like the border of the Ordovician-Silurian like mass extinction time. It's about 440 in that area. But this is a time where we actually found fossils of early scales of what are shark-like, right? So they're not sharks at that time, but they're considered like shark-like because – from my understanding is that at this time frame, it's like a time period of transition to where you get a shark. It, there has to be like a a diversion,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing that we can trace back that far is this, the scales that you mentioned. They're super unique, very easy to tell. A shark scale, apart from other fish, they are interlocking and they make this sort of seamless transition from one another And though their entire body is made out of cartilage, uh, that includes their teeth and that includes their scales. These two parts of their body, their teeth and their scales, are able to fossilize so incredibly easily because they are surrounded by mineralized appetite. And appetite is one of the hardest substances that we know of naturally occurring, biologically speaking. So they fossilize super easily. So when we're talking about... Uh, fossil sharks, you know, ancestors of our modern day sharks. Uh, These are mostly discovered through those two parts, the teeth and their scales. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So because we had a diversion from bony fish, right at that time period, that that 450 million years, another really cool thing is that these scales and, you know, bony fish scales independently evolved. Additionally, and you can add a lot to this, I'm sure, is that at one point in time after the diversion this is whenever bony fish started to develop the swim bladder so sharks do not have swim bladders and if you know the function of swim bladders it's the ability to take and pull gases from a a bloodstream in a bony fish and inflate the swim bladder such that you can create buoyancy and allow lift in the water column so that's what its function is, is allowing lift in the water column. And if you pull those gases out, let those gases go, you then sink as a bony fish, but sharks don't have this. So they have two mechanisms of being able to lift Uh, themselves, correct?
1: Yeah, sir. We we would say like maintain their position. Maintain position. Yeah, in the water column. But going back really quickly to something you say, it's not exactly that sharks diverged from bony fishes. That kind of divergence kind of happened at the same time. It's like a split, it's like a tree. So a big thing that we would look for in ancestral species of sharks is they're not going to have super well-developed skeletal systems to begin with. So basically from their common ancestor, we have the development of a bony skeleton and the development of a cartilaginous skeleton. And the other thing we're going to look for is the lack of a jaw. So what's fascinating is that sharks evolved from jawless fishes. Now, mm-hmm. there's not many species of jawless fish that still exist to this day. Uh, I think there's maybe like four or something. But I, so I like know... I, is one of them? Yeah. So sea lampreys, hagfish. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you look at the skeletal systems of those fish, they're also not bony fish. They're more ancestrally derived, we would say. So they, they have mm-hmm. a, a pseudo-cartilaginous skeleton. It's made out of some other stuff in there too. Just to make that point, bony fish didn't come around before sharks it's like exactly. an ancestral cousin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's right. So then going back to the fact that they don't have a, a swim bladder, it's super fascinating because this is what makes sharks uh, really special in a, in a couple of ways. So what is one of the things that most people think about when they think about sharks is they think about their fins, right? We see that thin, especially that dorsal fin, kind of sometimes gives you sh- chills when you think about a dorsal fin at the surface. <laughs> it's not something fun to see when you're in the water. But there's also other fins, right? They have their their caudal fins, which is just a fancy word for their tail. They have their pelvic fins, an anal fin, and of course they have their pectoral fins. So talking about lift, there are two main mechanisms for providing lift and maintaining their position in the water column would be their fins, right? Uh, Unlike other fish, you might just think their pectoral fins are just these little things that help them direct themselves. Sharks have these huge plane-like, wings almost they do the exact same thing that a plane wings would do and they, they provide lift as well as for the dorsal fins same thing as a, as a plane they keep the shark upright so that's really interesting that's a big reason why sharks have always evolved to continuously swim most shark species, is because by continually propelling themselves forward, they're generating that lift over their their pectoral fins. Uh, And that's also why the upper lobe, so the upper portion of their caudal fin is almost always bigger, because as you push, that upper lobe is going to provide some vertical thrust. So that's pretty cool. But that's only half the battle. The other half is their liver. So their liver is extremely, extremely big. It takes up so much of their interior space and this liver is full of super fatty lipids that are very buoyant on their own oh. so if you take out a shark liver out of its body and you actually just place it in some water the liver on itself will float at the top but this liver is also really important not only for helping with their buoyancy uh it's essentially their battery they don't store energy in fat like we do with like different kinds of, sort of white fat and brown fat They put all of their excess nutrients and energy into their liver because that way they're kind of killing two birds with one stone. You know, they're using this liver to help with their lift and they're using this liver to rely on in times of famine because sharks are big feast or famine species. And that's kind of the way you have to evolve as a a top predator, right? Food is not always going to be super available to you. So you got to have something to rely on when you're in between meals.
0: Oh, that's so cool. So take me through gill slits? Because gill slits on sharks are a lot different than bony fish. And I'm assuming this is also an independent evolutionary adaptation.
1: Absolutely. I can talk to you about their morphology. I don't really know why they evolved the way they did. Uh, like what was the driver that, that led to gill slits? So, you know, bony fish, they have what we would call an operculum, which is a bony covering that protects their gills. Uh, and it also allows them to undulate their opercolomas and move water across their gills. Sharks have generally five gill slits. And what they essentially are is small openings on the side of the shark that allow the water to pass through the mouth and then over the gills and out the side of those gill slits. And they have cartilage that essentially supports each gill slit. And what's fascinating about the gills is that their jaw was actually a gill cartilage. We call that a gill arch. So it was essentially their jaw was their first gill arch of a shark. And then it slowly moved forward and moved forward until it formed the upper and lower jaw of cartilage of the shark. I think it's really cool because jaws was a huge evolutionary leap in terms of fish evolution just the ability to capture your prey and really you know, hold on to it, lock onto it big time advantage. So yeah. uh, sharks went about it in a completely different way than bony fish did. Mm-hmm. And like I was talking about before, you can just really see how much of an advantage it is because of how few jawless fish exist to this day. So the jawed fish, once you had a jaw, you were definitely in a pretty good position.
0: Yeah, I think uh, with the bony fish, I think the placoderms were like the first bony fish to get jaws. And I was like in the Devonian. So it took a long time. Yeah. I thought that having the gill slits the way that sharks do kind of in two different ways, and maybe this is really simplifying things, but some sharks have to constantly move Mm -hmm. such that they get the water coming through their their mouths and over their... um, over their gill slits, while others can lay on the bottom of the seafloor and just use these muscles to pull water in, kind of like how bony yeah. fish do.
1: Yeah, there's two main forms, like you just mentioned, of ventilation. And uh, one of those we call ram ventilating. And that's most of your free swimming pelagic species, we'll say, the ones that live in that the middle of the water column. Uh, oh. And so ram ventilating, you know, as it sounds like they have to literally ram water <laughs> through their mouths in order to stay alive. So it's pretty incredible that they don't sleep. They don't, you know, they just continually swim and swim and swim. Uh, and then the other side of things, you have some species that because of their life history, you know, the niches that they've evolved to exploit. You mentioned a lot of these are, are bottom dwelling, ambush predatory type uh, species. You know, one of the ones that a lot of people will probably be familiar with is the nurse shark. Yeah. Uh, And these species we call buccal pumpers. And buccal, meaning basically the cavity of their mouth, has such developed musculature that they, and that's honestly kind of co-evolved, not only for breathing purposes, but also their feeding habits, right? They, a lot of them feed on um, very tough crustaceans and things that they need to grind up and conch and anything like that so they have really really powerful jaw muscles and that also allows them to sort of use those muscles to just to flex them and bring water it's incredible that we actually today of all days we had two huge nurse sharks uh, that we caught and tagged and worked up and they make this incredibly powerful sucking they use this powerful musculature in their face to just suck up their prey and then they start crushing and grinding jaws to just pulverize whatever's in their mouth. Wow. Um, so it serves a lot of purposes. Helps with breathing, helps with eating, but it, it sounds kind of whack when you bring them out of water <laughs> and you hear it for the first <laughs> time. Not going to lie.
0: Oh, that's really cool. That's yeah. really, you know, what? It, it brings new context actually in finding Nemo when Dory's like, just keep swimming. No, it should have been for the sharks, like <laughs> the mid column, the, <mid-column>, yeah. the <laughs> middle of the column sharks. Be like, yeah, yes, no, you exactly. Just keep
1: No, they have to. They have no choice. They don't need Dory to cheer them on. They have threat of death. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seriously. So we've kind of covered
0: the first probably uh, we've covered a lot of aspects of sharks in, in terms of what they have present day and and how they've kind of adopted these adaptations over the couple hundred million years. Uh, one thing that we did kind of talk about uh, based on the, uh, the shark's uh, scales and skin is that over time, especially after the Devonian, the Devonian was like uh, the Carboniferous and Devonian period was like a really weird time for sharks, especially in like the fossil record where they had some like really weird appendages. And, you know, if you want to look it up, I, I fully, I might even throw a couple pictures in the video aspect of this. Cause they're really weird. But after the Devonian, it just kind of all went to streamlined bodies for, for the yes. most part. But the most extraordinary jump out of the streamlined bodies today, and you can add on to this, is the hammerhead species, right? I would tend to
1: agree. In terms of our our larger bodied ones, you have some yeah. really wild-looking sharks that, you know, they, they have a different life history strategy. Uh, I don't know if any of you have... Who are listening might have seen what an angel shark looks like, but it looks like it got run over by a truck like 10 times. Uh, it is so flat and wide, it's almost comical. <laughs> yeah, going back to just really quickly what you're saying about the Carboniferous. Um, yes, yeah. you know, for the people who don't know, that's about like 360 to 320 million years ago for sharks, at least. Mm-hmm. And we call that the golden age of sharks because their diversity <laughs> was incredible. The fossil record just has an incredible amount of sharks. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure what allowed for that. I'm assuming that there was just so much resource availability for them to exploit. But that's what you definitely right you see some very very bizarre sharks during the carboniferous and then going into our modern day interesting looking sharks the hammerheads <laughs> they're a personal favorite of mine because my lab focuses very heavily on, on hammerhead species. Uh, we're lucky enough to be in a part of the, the country down here in South Florida, where we get uh, a good number of species. Um, but most importantly, or at least most beloved, is our great hammerhead. And so what what's so unique about this is obviously their head. We call that their cephalofoil. Which, which means really, head wing. <laughs> yeah, it literally does. And what people don't really realize is that it has like, a specific purpose honestly that purpose has less to do with their vision than most people would think about they're like oh you know bringing the eyes out like how do they see some of these species have near 360 degree view it's yeah. not binocular vision uh, most of the time it doesn't cross in the front but it does have near 360 degree field yeah view, i think it's like
0: 340 is, right
1: it's very close it's super impressive and It really depends on the species, how good their vision is. Many sharks have much better vision than people give them credit. But there are, you know, species where uh, eyesight was not important to their evolution. We'll just put it that way. So hammerheads, what this hammer does? um, Well, for one, it's super important for their hydrodynamic maneuverability. They essentially can use this head as sort of a uh, bank, a banking point, like the wings of a plane on the front it allows them to turn extremely uh sharply in shallow water uh, and that's because they they primarily hunt on rays which is kind of you know interesting they have they prey on their cousin you know their fellow <laughs> Elasmo brinks um and so when they're chasing down rays they're using this head to to essentially pivot the entire front of their body and that also goes hand in hand with the size of their dorsal fin uh, especially great hammerheads. They have this incredibly tall dorsal fin. It almost looks comical. Uh, it, it almost reminds me of the dorsal fin of a male orca whale, right? If you ever saw oh. a picture of a, uh, a bull orca's dorsal fin, they're just so incredible. They just stick out of the water so far. And this fin has an extreme purpose, especially in terms of their hydrodynamics. And that is, it's like the axis of rotation for their, uh, the center of their body. Uh, so combined with that interestingly wide head that allows them to bank on it and that tall dorsal fin, they essentially can rotate their entire body around an axis. Uh, and that's super incredible uh, for a shark of that size, right? Great hammerheads, they get, you know, 15, 20 feet. So it's they're a they're very large species, very maneuverable for their size. And once they finally narrow down on their prey, they use that wide, wide head to pin it to the to the bottom of the seafloor. Uh, And their mouth is, you know, it's on the the ventral side of their face. So then they just start taking chunks right out of the wings of the stingray that they're chasing after. And it kind of serves a a lot of benefits besides just the maneuverability by bringing their eyes so far away from everything that's happening in front of their face. Way less likely to get gouged out by a a stingray bar, which would be very traumatic to say the least. So, right. These guys, these hammerheads are very, very well adapted for what they do. Very well adapted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, right? Because like it, predator versus prey, prey usually have eyes that are more, you know, peripheral. But in the case of hammerheads, they have them outside, which is way more peripheral than like, say, a, a mako shark would have. They're, they're like long, I don't want to say long distance chasers because they're so
1: fast and they're so streamlined. I'm going to use this as the opportunity to transition us maybe into electroreception because yes. um, all sharks have this sense, right? It's uh, it's using the special pores that they have on their. It's scattered throughout their entire body, but most concentrated on their face, and these are called ampullae of Lorenzini. Super mm-hmm. super interesting. They actually contain a gel-like substance that i can never remember the name of uh (laughs) but it is one of the most conductive naturally occurring substances that we have ever encountered so basically it's super cool right like i and it's it's kind of weird when we when we catch them and sometimes we we do dissections on uh sharks that you know were unfortunately uh caught in bycatch of fisheries and stuff and they get donated uh, which is Mm -hmm. great because we put them to to use for science and in re- education um, but you can, you can kind of push down on uh, these pores, especially on the face of the shark. And you get this, uh, this gel like substance to come out and you can feel it. It's, it's super, it's almost like what you would expect jello to look like it's kind of gross, but very cool. When muscles move, right? They
0: release electrons. And as we understand the flow of electrons is current. And because, water is a great conductor you get the ability to have um, electrons travel a lot farther because this is how this works right you know we're not in air we're in water they can use this ability in such wonderful magnitudes to be able to detect the motion of their prey no matter if they're buried under the sand or making these extreme motions so it's
1: super fascinating how they do this it's awesome Mm -hmm. You're 100% correct. And what's so cool is that, like it, like you mentioned, it doesn't even require super explicit motions to generate an electro signal that can be detected by these ampullae of Lorenzini. It can be just something as minute as their heartbeat. You know, nothing is even able to escape detection sometimes. But I'll make it clear that this electro sense, it's very short range. Um, you know, it's pretty much the things that are immediately around them so they have to use their other senses to sort of get them in the position where this uh, electro sense becomes useful okay but and it's most sensitive to these low frequencies of electric stimuli and that's what you're going to have emitted from from their prey uh, but it's, it's not only used for hunting it can be used to you know detect potential mates uh, or conspecifics you know even like defend against predation as not every shark is, you know, top dog. Some of these sharks are also worried about getting picked off by larger sharks or even larger teleos grouper, barracuda, depending on the size of the shark, right? And so it's, it's pretty cool. These sharks have a much more directional sense with this electroreception than than we can imagine, especially hammerheads, especially hammerheads, because their, their head is so wide and it spreads out these ampullae Lorenzini. it really fine tunes uh, where the stimulus is coming from. Sort of like the same way that, you know, since we have ears on either side of our head, we can sort of detect a direction of a sound. Uh, they can do the exact same thing with electric stimuli. But some sharks that aren't hammerheads and don't have that advantage of having their, their ampullae so spread out on their face, it's harder for them to use it directionally, it's sort of more similar to our nose, where they're you know our nostrils are so close together that we can't really get directionality from a scent. We can sort of use concentration, and be like, oh, it smells stronger over here than it smells <laughs> over here, but we can't just on one whiff say, oh, it's coming from that direction. Yeah. So, but the electro sense it coevolves, right? Depending on how how much a species needs it, that's kind yeah. of how it's going to be used.
0: Right. It's a good point. Like we said. There's different species that take up different portions of the water column. And, you know, sometimes some senses need to be leaned on more than others. For example, the absence of light as you go further down into the water column, right? Yeah. So some things are more enhanced than others. This is a really good cutoff point. One thing I do want to say is that for the people coming in here that thought that uh, sharks really haven't changed much, it changed a lot <laughs> it changed a lot i mean evolution has not been stagnant for these beings by any means they're continually changing to this day absolutely so the geeking out session's done whenever we come back for the second segment we're going to be talking about conservation and uh what's happening today with shark species so stick around have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Sea Bar, a disposable plastic, free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does C-Bar pick up one pound of Ocean Trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to CBAR.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. CBAR, shampoo done right for you and the planet. We're back. This is segment two, and this is going to be talking about conservation. And we don't want to make this really sad. So, I mean, I'm sure if you're watching or listening to this, you're probably at least a little bit aware of what's going on in the developments of the sixth great mass extinction. If you want to label it that way, a lot of scientists are calling it the Anthropocene because of human infliction into environmental change. But uh, I think we can start and maybe John can give you his perspective being that he's at the forefront of what's going on, at least in marine life. So John, tell me what's going on with shark populations today.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely a tough pill to swallow, but globally, across the board, shark species are, are declining pretty dramatically. Uh, now, granted, 20% of species, if not more, are pretty understudied, so we don't really know much about them, um, but we know a lot about the habitats where they live and the state of those. So that's kind of how we're able to, to make a lot of our inferences about these understudied species, but that being said, um, at least 16% are threatened that's kind of the generous assessment threatened or worse right and mm-hmm. by worse we would include vulnerable uh, and we would include endangered, endangered. So, yeah yeah and then critically endangered if we're going to get really bad um so it's pretty scary um sharks are a pretty exploited group and sometimes they are directly fished which Happens sometimes legally and sometimes illegally, and a lot of times they are also harvested just for their fins. And before we really dive into more, I do want to make sure that everyone understands the distinction between uh, the fin trade and shark finning. So, shark finning is the the process of removing a fin from a shark or all of their fins from sharks, uh, and then discarding the rest of the shark at sea. But the fin trade is just the exchange of fins that are either harvested illegally Mm -hmm. or through more legitimate means because if you harvest a whole shark i sure hope that you're using those fins too and not putting those to waste that's just just an important distinction everyone hears oh like shark fin soup all of those fins must have come out illegally uh, through shark finning Um, while that is happening a lot some of these fins are also sourced legally and through legitimate avenues. Um, doesn't mean it should be happening, but just wanna make that distinction for people. The weird thing about it is is that shark fin soup is, and,
0: and I actually know this just from knowing people that have had shark fin soup, and they say it tastes terrible. That yeah, uh, it's it was, only for texture and it's only for a status,
1: at least from what I understand. Definitely. And from my knowledge, again, never having had shark fin soup, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that the shark fins are not even used for flavor. They're exclusively used for these uh, filamentous pieces of cartilage in their fins that we would call ceratotrichia. And, you know, essentially the shark fin is exclusively made of cartilage, like the rest of the body. Uh, um, and it's, there's really three main parts to a shark fin. There's the basils, which are the strong, thickest Uh, least flexible parts near the body of the shark. And then it transitions into the radials, which are moderately thick and a little bit more flexible. And then you have the psoriatotrichia, which are these really thin, long, flexible strands that make up the wavy part of the fin. And those, when you kind of like pull them apart and you you soak them or you boil them, they they sort of turn into like a a noodle almost. Um, So that's how how shark fins are used uh, in, in shark fin soup. I'm assuming something to the flavor, but I'm pretty sure it's just also the way that it's prepared that it just tastes bad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we can thank the the Ming Dynasty for bringing that into fruition. I don't remember the time period, but if at least you're familiar with with Chinese dynasties, there you go. That's where it originated.
1: Yeah, and and like so, like I said, shark populations as a whole—they're really they're kind of struggling, and humans have not been helping this out. This cause out very much. uh, A number of countries for a long time were were actually practicing shark bite mitigation strategies. And and honestly, there might be still some to this day where they are actively culling shark populations uh, along their coasts to reduce the risk of shark attack, which I personally think is is fairly ridiculous given just some of the basic statistics of uh, shark deaths versus shark attack deaths. So, generally, the number that you're going to see thrown around, it's obviously an estimate. We don't have perfect calculations for this, but there are hundred million sharks that are killed annually. And in comparison to that, we have about a hundred to 140 aggressive incidents. And now aggressive incidents is a little category that includes provoked attacks. So people being what I would say dumb, messing around with sharks in ways that they shouldn't. But of those aggressive incidents, we have about 75 to maybe a hundred unprovoked, uh, shark attacks every year with maybe across the, the whole globe, about six fatalities, uh, in the United States, it's generally one to two every two years. So okay. not a lot of deaths, right? Uh, most oh. shark, most shark bites Victims don't suffer anything worse than a dog attack, even. So, we're not even talking in the same scale here with 100 million shark deaths versus a couple of fatalities a year, maybe.
0: Um, right. And that's the numbers. But, like, from my understanding, is that most of it's not even in, intentional. They're just curious. And yeah. you're flailing in the water, you know?
1: Exactly. Right. We have a species down here uh, in South Florida, the, the black tip shark, uh, not the black tip reef shark, confusing, easily confused, uh, but a very, very different species. But they they hunt along those near shore, you know, beach habitats looking for like schools of mullet or, hay or anything like that. Um, okay. So uh, somebody who might have something flashy on, you know, a flashy bathing suit or something that looks like the shimmer of a fish in the water. And then they make the splash. That a fleeing mullet would do when it jumps out of the water, very easily confused, right? And this shark, it's a reaction, no thought that's going into this, right? Uh, so, yeah, it's it's really hard to blame sharks for for attacks. Um, we're kind of in their territories,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, just like kind of what we were saying earlier, they've taken upon these like niches in in the water column, and if you're acting like the thing that they've been hunting for millions of years. I don't think that's their fault by any means. Honestly, no. you're just confusing the hell out of them.
1: No, definitely not. Um, yeah. yeah. So shark, I mean, they're they're struggling uh, population wise, but they're also just struggling in terms of social perception. And that's like honestly what I almost enjoy talking about more. It's it's a little mm-hmm. less depressing. But you know, sharks. I would say are probably one of the top species or groups of species, groups of organisms that fall victim to these cognitive biases. And humans have evolved a a number of mental shortcuts, you know, that we call heuristics. And these heuristics, they like, they allow us to make decisions really easily. We don't have to necessarily think about everything super in depth, right? Uh, But they also can lead to some pretty significant cognitive biases. For example, just like the thing where you go to the store and you see something and you're like, you know, full price, I don't need it. I'm not going to buy it. You know, I'm interested in it, but I'm not going to buy it. And then maybe next week you go and then you see that exact item, buy two, get one free, right? And all of a sudden, something that you didn't need, you didn't <laughs> you didn't even need, you're walking out with three of them and you spent the money for two of them. Uh, so like, these are the sort of mental shortcuts, the heuristics that like can lead to these biases. You're like uh, a big one that everyone can think of uh, right off the bat is going to be the sunken cost fallacy right? Something that's like, oh, like that's, that's a big, that's a big one. But the one that the sharks fall victim to, we would call that the availability bias, right? And so uh, the availability bias is this idea that information that's really presented and is readily available, you're going to put much more emphasis on or importance to. And this is the case with shark attacks. Every single shark attack hits the news and you're going to hear about it. And you're going to think that shark attacks happen all the time. You're not going to hear about every single dog bite, right? Those don't get the same sort of press that shark attacks do.
0: You're more likely to be killed by a dog in the street or a cow in the street than you are by a shark.
1: That's exactly what I'm going towards right here. Oh, <laughs> That's exactly what I'm, what I'm aiming for is because a lot of this started uh, with Jaws. Since Jaws, the number of people that view sharks in a negative light or fear of sharks has just skyrocketed. So that's that's kind of really what I, as a scientific you know person in science communication, want to work to undo is this negative perception of sharks, because you know the vast majority of both your audience, my audience, are not going to be the people who can really do anything to stop the hundred million plus shark deaths a year, but we can do something to change social perception of sharks, which Absolutely. will hopefully one day trickle down effects to the people who are actually doing the killing
0: right and you know we talked about this offset just briefly a good example of what we've kind of terminated now is the fear of whales and Moby Dick was a great example of like what Jaws did but over time as we learned that you know whales give birth and they provide milk to their young and they travel these long distances to mate and to give birth They have communication skills, all the et cetera. The public perception changed to, holy shit, we need to save whales. So whale species have come back at a huge rate. It's kind of the same thing. It's it's also, you know, it's the fear of the unknown too. Fear mongering and the fear of the unknown mixing together and creating a really bad public perception. But in all reality, we need sharks. Based on the population change, I'm just curious and maybe you can explain this is what would happen if populations of
1: sharks you know continued to decrease so many 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 sharks are what we might classify as keystone species right and a keystone species is just any species that sort of has a a disproportionate effect on its on its environment compared to its population size right and so what sharks are really important for is uh they exert what we would call top-down control on tons and tons of marine life, right? And this is sort of like has a ripple effect through the rest of the, the food web. So without sharks, it, it's not as cut and dry as this. I do want to make this clear, but essentially what you there, the, you would have a trophic cascade, right? This cascade of effects throughout the food web and the reduction of sharks would lead to a Mesopredatory release. Uh, and just basically what that means is that you would have this blossoming of mesopredatory species, right? So that especially when you lose these apex predators, there's nothing exerting top down control on those mesopredatory populations. And so, what that would end up in turn do, right, you have all of a sudden you have all these mesopredators everywhere, is they would over consume the next tier down, right? And those would generally be our primary consumers. Uh, so, a lot of our herbivorous fishes, right? And then once you have your herbivorous fishes decimated, right. By these musa predators that are everywhere, you're going to have this blossoming of a lot of your herbaceous life. So you're going to have tons and tons of uh, algae everywhere and, you know, micro and macro algae. Yep. And really a big one that this is a problem for is most of our near shore habitats, right. Especially our coral reefs. Yeah. Uh, so coral reefs, they have to, corals have to compete for, you know, space and resources with these algae without these herbivorous fish to keep our algae populations in check essentially mow the lawn right uh you're gonna have corals just they're gonna lose that battle they're gonna lose that battle super easily because a lot of algae are much faster growing they can spread super easily but corals they like to take their time Uh, So that's essentially a lot of the worry that we would have uh, with losing sharks is that we would start losing our nearshore habitats. We would start losing our seagrasses. We would lose our coral reefs. And this would just have a terrible effect for us as humans, right? We like to look at everything from a very anthropocentric view. So if you're worried about like, well, why does it matter if we lose coral reefs? Why does it matter if we lose our seagrasses and all our nearshore habitats? Uh, Well, Pretty much everything that we depend on in the ocean depends on those habitats. So yeah. those habitats are super critical as nursery habitats, right? And they they really are where most of the foundation is set uh, for what would eventually provide you know, recruits. We would say so recruits are the basically new additions to a population to many of our economically important species. So any of those ones that we're going out to harvest, uh, to feed our families, essentially what would happen is this ripple effect would eventually decimate our nearshore habitats. And without our nearshore habitats, we're not harvesting as much of our fish. We're not getting the same economic benefit from coasts. Tourism would go down through the floor you know who would want to go scuba dive or recreationally fish you know a totally dead zone so exactly it's pretty dramatic stuff but they're important
0: a shark is magnitudes larger in worth alive than it is dead meaning that like you know you're doing your shark finning and then you're you know selling it in in different ways like for consumption that's very minuscule compared to what you would get out of your tourism and the species that are affected by shark pretty much regulation throughout the uh throughout the water column additionally this is a an attack on human rights like you said social and um economically estimates of like two billion people live along coastlines that thrive off of the ocean and in what it provides. So if you attack the water column, you attack the 2 billion people that directly depend on it.
1: Absolutely, man. And the word that everyone should have on the tip of their tongue at all times is sustainability, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we just, we need to figure out how to utilize these resources in a sustainable way. That's really the name of the game because um, I'm not gonna sit here and tell a, a subsistence fisherman who needs it to provide for his family, that he can't do that for his family. Yeah. Right. We just need to tell him how to do it in a way that will continue to provide for his family, provide for his kids' families, yeah, provide great. for his kids, kids, kids' families, right? That's what's really important. I'm yeah. all about utilizing natural resources in ways that are sustainable. Right. We live on this planet. We as a species need to provide for our well being too. So the yeah. big reason that sharks are just like so, so vulnerable to this fishing pressure, whether it's bycatch or finning or direct harvesting is that they just have super, super long generation times, right? They take a super long time to reach the age of sexual maturity. They're not pumping out a ton of young. Sometimes they reproduce biannually or triannually even, right? Where they're going two or three years between litters. And so you just don't have a big reproductive output in these species, right? On TikTok, I get the question, I was like, why do you care about the sharks over these other fish, right? Well, that other fish, one female, may release 2 million eggs in a single year, right? Mm -hmm. Nowhere close to those numbers with sharks, right? And then once those fish are released from those 2 million eggs, they're going to take, depends on the species, right? But maybe like a year to reach sexual maturity. Whereas like sharks, you're going to need like 15 years or more to reach sexual maturity. And a lot of sharks are right. not even getting the chance to reproduce, right? You can't have a sustainable population if you're not putting new additions into that population.
0: Right. Birth rate versus death rate is just a great way to sum that up. If you're equal or, or positive in terms of birth rate versus death rate, depending on, again, the, what the population is doing, you're good. But once you dip the other way in the worst of ways, it needs to be addressed. And that's kind of what's happening is death rate is greater than birth rate. Yeah. Exactly. We're touching on it here, so I, I think we might as well just transition into it. What what are some steps that are being taken across the board that we could, you know, address here so people can feel better about what we've been talking about?
1: Well, a lot of regulation is is based on on size uh, of the shark, so there are regulations that are put put in place um, for harvesting sharks that are normally based off of population assessments as well as modeling for. How that population is doing making sure that uh, we're able to replenish the population more than we're removing from it so there has been a shift and there continues to be a shift in certain places to put into place ecosystem-based management so ebm is a big terminology that's being thrown around now because uh, it's a trend it's marks a transition from what we would just call fisheries based management so instead of viewing every fishery as a standalone entity We're sort of realizing we need to take a second look at this, a closer look at this uh, from a more holistic perspective. And like, uh, we can't just manage this group of organisms, this population of organisms completely divorced from the rest of its environment. And so that's being applied to sharks as well, especially given, you know, their propensity to result in trophic cascades if we don't manage them properly properly. And so that's been helping, right? We've been realizing that we need to take into account our management of sharks based off of how we're managing their prey species, based off of how we're managing their habitats. A big one that's starting to take more and more emphasis is MPAs, marine protected areas. So in the United States, we would you know generally call them national monuments or national parks or state parks, even whatever mm-hmm. level that this this MPA is established at. And they can have a variety of regulations, whether it's no fishing zones, no use zones, catch and release only zones, right? You know, boater only or scenic view only or whatever it may be. There's there's a ton of different levels of regulation, but what they allow us to do is essentially close off certain portions of habitat that are especially critical uh, for sharks, especially like nursery zones or where they go to mate or critical feeding habitats and these we can actually establish in networks so because a lot of these top predators they don't they're not super highly residential to a single area they migrate hundreds and hundreds of miles we kind of are able to sometimes set aside corridors where they travel and then both their destinations on either end of that corridor, whether it's, you know, they're leaving a feeding habitat to go to a mating habitat or whatever it might be. Um, So MPAs are a big reason too, that we're able to sort of shift into setting aside habitat, marine habitat for specific purposes, uh, for conservation purposes.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, and I know we were going to touch on this in segment three, but how does field work in marine biology benefit conservation? I know that sounds like a really stupid question, like in terms of <laughs> like how that came off, but like I'm sure there's there's a plethora
1: of knowledge there. Yeah. yeah, so basically, the people in the positions to make the changes necessary to bring about positive impacts on these populations, they're not experts in marine science. Right? They're not experts in shark science. So what fieldwork allows us to do is we're you know we're c- gathering data. We're like essentially the foot soldiers of people who have their fingers on the pulse of the ocean, mm-hmm. and figuring out okay what's what's going on in this area, in this population. How is this organism holding up to uh, a certain pressure, right? And then with that information, you're able to have some serious implications for conservation. You're essentially arming the policymakers with the knowledge that they need to make informed decisions. Um, and that's really like-
0: The name of the game, they, change. right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You can't have good decisions that are uninformed. You need every every good decision, every good change needs to be informed. Uh, so that's, that's what field work uh, does. Science is sort of the currency of science is publication. And why is that? Well, because the more you publish, the more you're telling everyone else in this, in this field and policy makers people in position of power what you're finding and what's going on and why it matters really yeah. if you can't tell if you're a scientist and you're a real scientist and you can't tell somebody why what you do is important you know it's kind of like you need to rethink what you're what you're doing uh, absolutely that's that's the name of the game really.
0: absolutely so we we're talking about data right and in a sense the field data is you know hands-on but I'm kind of curious, do you know of any attempts of having satellite imagery for extra data coming in, in terms of like monitoring fishing practices and stuff like that? Because I'm sure that's another way that you can combat illegal fishing.
1: Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what all goes into keeping a track of fishing, because really, What throws off every single, essentially, effort uh, to curtail illegal fishing? Well, there's three issues to fisheries management. We call it IUU. It's illegal fishing, unregulated fishing, and unreported fishing, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think only about the illegal fishing. Oh, we need to stop illegal fishing, right? But what about all the fishermen who are out there who are coming back to to dock and saying, I only caught this many fish, you know, but they're really underselling what they have uh, or underestimating, purposefully underreporting. Right. Uh, Or you have the people who just live in countries that don't regulate their fishing because they think, well, you know, uh, I share waters with five other countries. So why would I regulate my fishermen if, you know, if they're only regulating their fishermen to that extent? So in terms of like modern technology, like how, how we actually keep track keep track of that, I'm not, you know, I can't really answer that question. I, I'm sure we're probably putting every single uh, tool that we have in our belt to work, uh, but I'm not quite there yet in my career to know what, what really is going on at that side of the desk.
0: Yeah, I couldn't imagine that it would just be like, you know, how you see on television where these boats just pull up to these other boats and they're like, you know, having these boat wars, but I I can't imagine that that's the only tactic I'm just assuming with all of the satellites that we have revolving around the earth, I really feel like it should be used in that manner.
1: Yeah. Well, I can definitely tell you that we're putting those satellites to use for uh, research purposes. You know? Like we're putting tags on those sharks. Um, yeah. And these tags are super cool. They can tell us so much. They cost a pretty, pretty nickel, but they're not only able to track the movement of the shark, But they tell us a lot about the surrounding environment of the shark, depth, salinity, anything else of those environmental parameters, temperature. And some of them, they stay on the shark for a long time. You can even have depredation uh, tags that if a shark gets a smaller bodied shark gets eaten by a bigger shark, the uh, digestive enzymes will actually trigger the tag to start releasing a new signal. So it's like, hey, this is not the same shark that I was tracking before. We're tracking a new shark. So that's pretty cool. But even those technologies, they have some pretty severe limitations. You know, like uh, most of these tags, they can't transmit to the satellites unless they break the surface. So we're basically mm-hmm. only able to track certain species that uh, frequently visit the surface. Uh, yeah, their their dorsal fin breaks that surface, enabling that information to be transmitted. But overall, pretty cool stuff. I want to get into satellite tags, but you know, one day I'll have that grand money.
0: Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're getting there, man. So uh, I'm kind of curious, is there anything else that you would like to add in the conservation section or something that you would like to say before we transition to segment three?
1: Yeah. um, I think there is one last thing I want to say, and that is to to sort of caution people against the other side of the availability bias, which is their I would probably call this um, perception bias. People tend to put a lot more importance on things that they have experienced themselves so i hear it a lot from either recreational fishermen or people who live in certain parts of the country that they say man i see sharks all the time sharks are doing fine Uh well you're looking at a very small sample size you know like down here in south florida pretty much anywhere along florida you can have some pretty incredible aggregations of sharks at times. So like, say along the East coast of Florida, you'll have sharks that are migrating up and down and sometimes they migrate en mass, you know, like in huge groups, you see that ginormous migration. You're like, Hey, what are you, what are people telling me that sharks are going extinct? I just saw a couple hundred of them right there, you know, or down here in South Florida, we're right off the, the Florida Bay, which is part of Everglades national park. Uh, and the Florida Bay is super shallow and it's, Uh, extremely important uh, nursery habitat for sharks. So if you're having a ton of sharks that are coming in to the Florida Bay to give birth, and then you have tons of juveniles running around for years on end before they head off to be big, bad sharks elsewhere, you might think, wow, you know, sharks are fine. I see them all the time. They're everywhere. Well, just remember that what you're seeing is not representative of the entire picture. And that's really important Mm -hmm. for people to remember. So yeah it's local
0: not global i totally agree you know we get that like all throughout ecology and environmental science it's the denial until it affects me kind of a deal you know it's the same thing with the water crisis the same thing with climate change and it's the same thing with with populations you know it's like oh you know i got water you know there's no water shortage or Mm -hmm. what do you mean it's
1: snowing today it's climate change isn't real you know (laughs) that's exactly right um and yeah, man, we didn't even talk about climate change. You know, climate change just basically Hell pours yeah. gas gasoline on the fire of every single other conservation issue that we're having because now, you know, sharks' distributions are are getting mm-hmm. so blown out of proportion. You have tropical species that are able to migrate so much further north. And, you know, eventually you're gonna have just so much new competition. It's species that essentially never have to to coexist and cohabitate a, a habitat are now right next to each other and so you're gonna have a lot a lot more uh nuanced ecological effects than we can even anticipate because of the fact that the climate is changing so that makes the modeling way more difficult (laughs) i am only at the sliver tip tippy top of uh computational biology and it is incredible what people are able to do i think i like the field more than i like me being behind a computer but you know it's equally as important
0: understood yeah and and i i didn't even i didn't even think i was going to make a remark about climate change effects but i think we've run the number on segment two so whenever we come back we're going to talk about marine biology and how john got involved in marine biology and some of the work that he does so stick around are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. This is segment three and we're back and we're talking about marine biology and what it's like to be a grad student and then also getting John's take and why he decided he wanted to pursue marine biology. So might as well start with the latter. John, please tell me why you had inspiration to become a marine
1: biologist. I've always been in love with nature, with ocean wildlife especially, I uh, never really considered it as a, as a career option until I was like pretty late in high school. Um, I, I think I at the time was probably leaning towards like entrepreneurship, economics. Uh, I was pretty interested in business at the time, but I had fish tanks growing up. You know, it's almost like a cliche story. And my oldest brother, he, you know, he looked at me. I think I must have been telling him excitedly something about what I was doing in my tanks. He goes, man, you love your fish so much. Why don't you just study them? And I said, "Wait, you can do that?" Like I, I genuinely, as like a senior in high school, had no idea that like you could study marine biology. I knew there were marine biologists out there, but I didn't you know it was like an acceptable thing to do. Um, so I immediately like the schools I was looking into. I was like looking into their biology programs. If they had marine biology programs, throwing applications at schools that had marine bio programs that I wasn't considering before. And, you know, so kind of transitioning into my path to marine biology, I, uh, so I attended the University of Notre Dame for undergraduate. And you think, wow, northern Indiana, marine biology, question mark, like, how does that work out? Well, you learn very quickly that uh, in the field of marine biology, you're going to pretty much always need a graduate education of some kind. You know, there's very limited opportunities for people who are just bachelors, uh, four-year Program educated, and those positions that are available are pretty hard to sustain a career in for a long time. Um, they're mostly going to be seasonal field tech positions. You know, you might uh, be a lab tech or a research assistant, and those you know, there's high turnover. It's very tiring, exhausting work. Uh, and so I was like, okay, you know, what? I'm probably going to need a grad grad degree no matter what. So I'm going to choose to go to this school that I fell in love with and. Uh, had a great football program and everything. It's just going to be an undergraduate experience that I was looking for, uh, and they had a great bio and they had a great biology program too. So that's kind of what I I tied myself over for four years doing aquatic ecology, and it was awesome. I got to go to the uh, University of Notre Dame Environmental Research Center for uh, field seasons, which was in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, it's a seven thousand five hundred acre property with like thirty something lakes on it been owned by Notre Dame for over a century. So pretty much as pristine as possible. And so that was awesome. It was a good experience of freshwater biology. I liked it a lot, um, but I always had my eyes set on becoming a marine biologist. So I applied for a bunch of external opportunities to get some experience in in marine side of things. And I went to the Galapagos during August after my sophomore year. I got to participate in some some sea turtle biology research, which was really, really cool. Could talk your ear off about that. Nice. Um, Then I also uh, got to be an intern for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and did some ecotoxicology research on Pacific herring embryos. Very, very different from what I do now, pretty much on the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, we're looking at embryos under a microscope versus, you know, giant sharks in the the Atlantic, (laughs) my big thing that I want to tell everyone is that your path to marine biology is never going to look like someone else's path. You don't have to study marine biology in undergrad. You don't have to take every single AP science in high school. There's so many different ways to end up. You don't even have to do your undergraduate degree in biology. I have friends right now who worked in finance for five, six years, decided they hated it. They hated corporate life. They wanted to get back out into something that they really are passionate about and then they they just started doing self-taught biology classes and preparing and they, they apply for graduate school and now they're doing a master's in marine biology you can, you can prepare yourself in a bunch of different ways for a career in marine biology there's no one set path
0: uh, that's awesome to hear i just really want to reiterate the fact that like anybody can set their mind to something and go get it anybody can be a scientist there's no precursor to it as long as you put your mind to it you can achieve it and become whatever you want in i guess all of steam right science technology engineering arts and math so it's applicable to whoever you know don't ever think that you can't do something totally and yeah so uh, i'm curious you know what do you have to deal with on a day to day as a marine biology student in in yeah. master's program or just and what you've heard
1: even through phd but what, what really applies to you so no matter what program you're in, whether it's PhD, masters, you're gonna face a year of classes. And that's for the most part, gonna kind of feel like an extension of undergraduate. You're gonna be focusing heavily on your classwork during that first year. And depending on how ambitious your PI is, your you know the professor who heads your lab, you might start your research during that time or they might just say, hey, focus on your classes. Uh, and then after that, you're pretty much free you're set loose on, on research. Uh, and what that looks like is generally you're coming up with a, a research idea. You gotta do a ton, a ton of background uh, reading into that idea and you know the literature review part of things is, is very extensive, a lot of reading, <laughs> a lot of reading journal articles. And then you gotta propose that idea, you gotta defend that proposal and then you do the actual research. And then once you're doing the actual research, Hopefully, you're getting the results you need to write your thesis or your dissertation, and then, boom, you defend that, you're good to go. The basic difference between a thesis and a dissertation is um, pretty much that dissertations are like three theses that stapled together, right? You're essentially, you're working on, for a thesis, like one core project, one core research question, and then for a dissertation, you're going to essentially do that four times over. And each of those is going to be a separate chapter that's hopefully tied together thematically.
0: One one important thing about like the dissertation and probably like an underlying reason why we do that in academia is handling scrutiny to your ideas. Because science, you know, you have to understand that there's like one, there's a relativity of wrong and two, you're never going to be 100% right about something. So you have to handle scrutiny. Additionally, you're not a good scientist if you don't know how to handle being wrong or admit to being wrong about something. You know, the trials and tribulations and having to go through a committee that can literally just tear you apart. You have to, that's it. You have to be set up for that for the real world. If you go into science thinking that you're not gonna handle that on a day-to-day, you're kind of crazy. I get told yeah. I'm wrong every day in engineering. <laughs> every day
1: <laughs> no it's 100 it's true you need to be able to handle criticism well but you also need to be able to just communicate effectively right that that's that uh, that's honestly pretty forgotten at times quality in science you have people who are uh have essentially been trained to communicate their science to a very very narrow audience yeah scientists in their field primarily and with this this lab that I'm in right now, and I'm very uh, uplifted by my professor. That I think that she's going to ensure that the communication that we're taught, the style of communication, is is really to cater to a larger audience. Um, it's moving away from excessive jargon and very hard to read, hard to digest papers. It's very an unfriendly and a pretty clicky area sometimes.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's really important. And you know. I can probably say this on air is it's it's pretty prevalent that science needs science communicators in that manner or just just scientists that are way more equipped to communicate what they're doing to a larger audience i mean we saw that just case in point covid i mean that was such a drop of the ball by by scientists by science in, in general and um scientists were outcompeted competed by mainstream media like what we talked about earlier fear-mongering or creating stories and having people be you know the fear of the unknown and we need that ever more moving forward in a in a technological society
1: oh for sure and it's not only like to be able to communicate the results of what you're looking into or whatever you're researching but also how you did it is equally as important i think not not to get super political with this but like yeah the whole covid thing Nobody really understands how a vaccine is made or what a vaccine is. And so there's so much fear surrounding that. I agree. Science communication has is, is never been more important than now.
0: Absolutely. So since we are on the subject of science communication, uh, I know that you've blown up pretty much lately, right? As Marine Bio John.
1: <laughs> yeah, Marine Bio John uh, sort of took the stage this summer it's funny enough, I think I might have told you this little backstory earlier, but mm-hmm. I created the the TikTok because I had created a TikTok for my a new puppy. Uh, I never had a TikTok before and I decided I was going to make a TikTok and this puppy all of a sudden got three million views. I was like, wait, <laughs> wait, hold up. Something seems a little off here. Why is this dog like more popular than I am? No, and I had a friend who was like, dude, you're a marine biologist. If there's ever anything that's going to be interesting, and, you know, sort of be that hook to people to engage with your content. It's being a marine biologist is pretty unique. So I was like, okay, you know what? I, I was a little hesitant to dive into a more personal side of my life, but very quickly, you know, kind of gain traction and people seem to really be fascinated with sharks and just the science behind sharks. I'm, I'm essentially a talking head on TikTok. I'm not allowed to bring a camera on my my research vessel. All anything that's photographed or filmed on my boat kind of has to go through a vetting process to make sure it's acceptable for the the general public. I haven't really gotten to that stage yet where I'm actually showing people what I'm doing in science. It's more about talking about what other people are seeing on TikTok in marine biology and like hopefully clarifying things and preventing misconceptions uh, and misinformation being from being spread or just making you know my own content. Talking about how shark skin works and why it's so cool, so it's it's been it's been a good time so far.
0: Uh, it's great to hear, man, and and I'm glad that you're really focusing on public perception because we need that. So, John, I just want to say, you know, wrapping up here, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. This has been awesome I'm getting to geek out, getting to talk about conservation, and uh, getting to talk about you know academia. Thanks for coming on.
1: Absolutely, man. This has been my uh, first appearance on a podcast and i wouldn't want it to go any other way ah man thanks i appreciate that <laughs> well hey man
0: take care and um i'm sure we'll talk soon yeah thanks so much sam that is all for this episode of everything steam i just wanted to take a quick second and thank john for taking the time to share his knowledge on sharks if you enjoy marine biology and more specifically sharks i recommend you give john a follow on tiktok at marine bio john I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC'd by Panyabit Urixit, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun STEAM content. Just search Everything STEAM on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything STEAM. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. everything steam would like to give a shout out to anchor by spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with ben cell music for providing our show with intro outro and advertising background rhythm